Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. Each year, Sala's feature artist is aligned with the recipient of the Essay Living Artist publication. This year, that's Mark Valenzuela. In addition to this publication, his work is featured in a solo exhibition at Adelaide Central Gallery. Please enjoy this interview about this exhibition and his practice. Still some chairs on this side of the I'd like to begin by acknowledging that the land we meet on today is the traditional lands of the Ghana people. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. And we pay a special welcome to any First Nations peoples joining us today. Uh, Adelaide Central School of Art is very proud to be hosting the Sala feature artist for 2022, Mark Valenzuela. Uh, not only has Mark pulled off a pretty spectacular installation of work in our gallery with his exhibition Still Tied to a Tree, but this year sees the publication of Mark's new monograph, uh, which has been written by Belinda Howden and Anna O'Loughlin. And uh, you also have an installation of work at the Art Gallery of South Australia, Mark. Uh, this talk is happening outside of the gallery for the simple reason that it is just so full of work at the moment that we couldn't possibly hope to cram all of you in there alongside an exhibition full of drawing, painting, ceramic and installation work. If you haven't had the chance already, I urge you after the talk to head on in there and check out the show. Uh, but Mark, I thought... For our conversation today, yeah. hello, welcome. Yeah, hi, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Uh, it might be, and seeing that this exhibition and this conversation is happening at an art school, I thought we could start by talking a little bit about your own training in the visual arts. Yeah. So reading uh, Anna's essay in your monograph, I can see that you didn't have access to a visual arts course at your university in Damagete City in the Philippines. You had to design your own arts training, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Can you uh, tell us well, about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, um, there was, uh, Dumaguete is the central part of the Philippines. And, uh, that's where, how I met Anna as well. And that's where I met Anna. And it's a, a small town, university town. And there's plenty of writers. It's sort of like the cent center of the, the writing, um, world in the, in the Philippines. So, um, but the problem is there's no fine arts there yet. So during my time, at the moment, there's two or three now. But uh, during my time, there's no fine arts. So the closest to fine arts was engineering. But before that, I even went to accountancy and uh, management. Uh, These are not things that people consider yeah, yeah, yeah. very proximal to the visual arts. It's, uh, not very, but in terms of materials, yeah. the reason why I took engineering because of, um, yeah, it's the closest thing to fine arts. Because of that, they talk a lot about materials and research about about different materials. And I said to myself, like, oh, this could be the best approach to it. But I, other than that, I'm also practicing by myself already by going to, you know, sorry, you're not meant to do this, but stealing books in the library. In the Philippines, you can't borrow books. You can't bring it home. So, or else you're going to be staying in the, the library up to 7 p.m. or 9, 9, or 9 p.m. during weekend. So in order for me to access all of that, I have to throw them in the window and then get it. But I return them. So <laughs> <laughs> so that's one way of uh, educating myself in art. Uh, I love that we're starting off this conversation with a confession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think you had a pretty interesting strategy for the books that you selected as well by uh, examining the library cards yeah. as to who'd been reading yeah. them in the past. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I look at the artists that I admired because in that town, it's actually an art, 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 artist haven. So people like Paul Pfeiffer oh. used to study there and, you know, work. There, Christina, Tanig uh, Christina Taniguchi and the daughter Maria Taniguchi. Hmm. They're pretty well known in the art art world at the moment. And and I just look at the names that you know. Yeah. So you've read everything that Paul Pfeiffer's read. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. So I, yeah, yeah. I think the fact that you are self-taught and you kind of designed your own artistic course probably um, explains a lot about the diversity of your practice. Mm -hmm. You seem equally 
equipped to work across drawing, painting, and mm. ceramic objects. But this was all self-taught by yeah, you? Yeah, it is. Um, the reason why I'm doing drawings and paintings a lot in my previous life is that because that's the only... It's quite conservative, the place as well. So, you know, it's still painting, painting, and drawing, drawing. So that's why it's probably a good one because I was able to really learn more about drawings. But way before than that, I've been drawing and making paintings. But when I went to the study, when I went studying in, um, in the university, in Silliman University, provided me a lot of competitions because there's a lot of people, like creative people around. So, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, engineering, ceramic. That's how I learned about... Well, in, uh, you were telling me about this, and I found it really interesting, the access to materials and this concern with materials that drove you towards engineering. It, it is quite a different environment than where uh, that we might take for granted here in Australia. To collect materials to pursue your ceramic practice was a lot more involved than going over to the shop that's adjacent to an art yeah. school and buying a kilo of clay. What, what would be involved for you? Well... I used to gather my own or my own materials. Like I, I, I source my own clay. I dig my own clay. I go to the mountains and look for clay, clay body that works with my work. But it's just basically terracotta, like lower, lower far, lower firing clay. And before I went to engineering, it's all about just you know randomly learning it on like on the spot, like. But engineering provided me a research background to my practice. So, so like we, I tested clay and, you know, like how, how high can, I can, you know, reach temperature with the, the local clay we had. And it's a backyard material. It's everybody knows clay. If you're, if you're in the Philippines, like everybody knows terracotta. Everybody does. They use terracotta as a material for the, for their practice because you can really access it. Like you can access it in your backyard and then dig and, and then, then that was the start. And then I go on and on and processing my own clay, drying my own clay, building my own kilns. And yeah. I think it's a, I think that sort of DIY ethos of having to uh, make do with what you've got, but also not stop with what you've got, but to actually sort of like build your own kiln and your own firing yeah. equipment and things like that has really served you well in your practice. It, it, it is open up doors to not being limited by processes that you've been taught or... Yeah materials or facilities that you have available to you. Yeah, it, it does. And also, like, it, 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 it gave me, a, you know, like, unlimited resources of, uh, you know, creativity because during the process, the process itself is an art practice and it's an art form, you know, like even building a kiln. There was a time that I built a kiln around the work and when I noticed it, like, oh, the work inside looks really good. But the outside too, you know, the kiln itself, and the act of firing as as well. So, so on the way, there's there are plenty of things like you you, you sometimes you know uh, take it for granted in exhibitions because in exhibitions is a product. Oh, it's an object, right? But there's a lot of things going around 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 that or before that before you see the object hmm. or. The process of the making process, the work yeah. can be as interesting as, yeah, the, as interesting the or even more interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, for me. When you were in the Philippines, um, a, a lot of your activities and some of the work you were making was tied up as your role as a protester and thinking about the, that political dimension of your work, did that heavily influence your art practice? Yeah, it does. Well, everything in the Philippines again as well. Sorry if I keep on mentioning the Philippines. Because I lived there for... It's pretty like, fundamental to, you, uh, yeah, to your yeah. life. So I lived there for 32 <laughs> we'll, we'll years. So, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, almost everybody, like artists I know, it is a big part of their practice. Because it's the only way to actually change the system. Mm-hmm. So artists plays a big role in the Philippines. Like they are the frontliners of change in my country. Yeah. Like, yeah, so they speak a lot about the administration, whoever the administration, whoever running the administration. So, mm. and I'm part of that. So, and yeah, and that's an ongoing thing for you. An ongoing it? thing for me. So, I go in and out of that yeah. because sometimes it could be scary too. But yeah, and dangerous for you. And dangerous yeah. for some artists. Yeah. But yeah, it's part of our the way we operate our practice. Mm. And. 
I mean, I think that that goes back to that point that you were making about the process of making work. A lot of political work um, gains its power by how and where it's engaged with. It's often exhibited in the public space. Um, it might be displayed at demonstrations or things like that. And I think that that's something that is part of your practice as well, this idea of, A, putting work in the public space, but also this real concern about the performance of installation or display. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe the works of yours that you've made in public space and how that, um, how that works? Are we talking about the Philippines? We can talk or about here. the Philippines or here. Yeah. Uh, so the ones that I made here is, yeah, so it's reinforced by my act of putting works around, yeah, public places and pub public spaces. And I get fascinated. I get fa But this, this, these things are quite, to be honest, came later in my practice. So, and that's the reason why probably because that, 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 that when I started exhibiting in Manila, Manila could be, you know, like there's hundreds of exhibitions every day and no, not every day, every week, but there's a lot of exhibitions, hundreds of galleries and you can, you can even um, make a living out of it. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> you don't have to cook dinner, you just go exhibitions every night so right you know, oh, some that kind of living. okay yeah, some, all right some, i think some. that was different from whatever it was uh, and both, both, yeah. both 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 <laughs> and 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 um yeah, yeah so it's very space-bound not very performative um there are a few but you can only count them in the finger on your in your finger so when i came here this provided me a lot of avenue this big spaces to do things and you know your work don't, don't get damaged or, you know, things like that. So oh, there's a lot of freedom in the street too. So mm. there are um, spaces like that in the Philippines, but as what I said, it's not that much mm. compared here. So most of my, the street part of my work is actually when I moved in Australia and visited Indonesia as well. Because Indonesia is very big in uh, performative art and street art as well. So, mm. yeah. And when we're talking about here, the street art that you're exhibiting, it can range from stencils, but yeah, it also includes some ceramic objects, yep, which is pretty it, 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 yeah, unusual. It, yeah, 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 definitely, because uh, it's the idea of occupying space. So, yeah, so the object will leave it there and it occupies, it occupies space for a little bit, yep. but sometimes forever. And, uh, yeah, so, and then, and then stencils, of course. The only problem with stencils is that it occupies space longer because with, with, with ceramic, it becomes an object and people love objects. They disappear. Yeah, they disappear, in they other disappear. words. <laughs> yeah. um, but this idea of territoriality, of occupying space, is yeah. certainly something that is very much an undercurrent of the current exhibition. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it runs through a, quite a lot of your work. Do you want to talk about how that um, idea of territoriality stems from both your upbringing, upbringing in your life in the Philippines and what you encountered when you came to Australia? Those oh. differences in public space, maybe. Yeah, that's a very difficult question. But yes. Okay, maybe I can yeah, break yeah. it down. No, 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 no. It's okay. Uh, well, I've been talking about territoriality in my work for like ages already. And that's probably because of my upbringing as well. Um, and I live, again, I came from the Philippines and the Philippines is always subject for outside forces all the time. So there's always, uh, you know, there's colonial influence. Yeah, yeah. And there's always a threat of invasion, you know, like people grab our lands and stuff like that. So it, that's an ongoing problem and phenomenon in the Philippines, even up to now. Mm. So that probably is one major reason as well. So. And but also my dad used to be uh, in the military, so uh, there's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And and then when I came here, it's a different world again, right? So the way we define territories here is very different again. So. Yeah, it, it, from our conversations, it ranges from this geopolitical sense of like yeah. national boundaries and and territorial yeah. borders. But also when you arrived in Australia, you were telling me about the, the way public space is divided up, the sort of backyard fence, the difference between noise and density that yeah. you experience in the Philippines as you experience here. 
Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that that different experience of the environment of moving well, through these different cities? You know, the, I, I forget that the which which Superman uh, movie it was. It, it was like uh, when General Zod came to Earth yeah, and yeah. sort of like busted chasing, out of the Phantom Zone. Yeah, 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 and chasing Superman yeah. some way. And the the edge of Superman there is that his system adjusted already to the environment. Yeah. He can hear things, but he can also block things, right? Mm. I like, you know, background his, noise. His, his super hearing is so sensitive. His super hearing, yeah, his that, super hearing is so sensitive. learned to live in a noisy planet. Earth. Yeah. So, and then Zod can't take that, right? Because it's new for him. So it's a bit like that for me, you know, when I'm not saying that I'm super. You're General Zod. Or I'm General <laughs> Zod, you know? <laughs> but it's a bit like that for me. Like, you know, uh, I even made a show about that called Terraforming. So it's about, uh, you know, how you adapt to a space, right? And then also when you come to a space, there's a pre-existing noise or background noise that you, you, it's, it's, you're not accustomed to, you know. In the Philippines, we hear a lot of, you know, background noise like roosters crowing because they're farmed and farmed to fight. And stray dogs, hundreds and millions of stray dogs and stray, stray animals and then, and of course, the, we live really close to each other, you know, um, that provided us, uh, you know, like a beautiful background noise that I sort of missed. When I came, I used to be critical about that when I was there because there's, some, there's no private space, you know, like when can I have privacy? I have to climb a mountain, yeah. which is for real. I have to climb a mountain to give, get, get, get my own space, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And you Anna, can get some clay while you're there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But here, when I arrive here, it's a bit different. It's so quiet for me. Mm. And I can hear my, you know, my tummy rumbling, you know. Yeah. I can hear it, like literally. Yeah. I told my friends about it. In, one, one, in, one in Thailand said, so like, isn't that beautiful? You can hear, you can hear everything? <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. But sometimes also it's, 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 it, it could be isolating as well. Like, oh, yeah. you hear a lot. You see a lot. Anna, yeah, you hear a lot. You see a lot. But not so much noise, not so much background noise, but you hear a lot because everything gets uh, magnified. Yeah, it's used like another superhero analogy. It's a bit like Daredevil, yeah. who's able, who's, whose smell and hearing is more yeah. amplified and can sort of like pick up on things that yeah. other people don't notice. Yeah. But there's a really nice work in the Still Tide to the Tree exhibition, which is the ceramic leaf blower. And on the end yeah. of the leaf blower is a is not a nozzle to blow air, but is a human ear. Yeah. So the human ear is uh, way, way back to my, uh, probably 10 years in my practice. But I just use the ears now as, uh, you know, as leaves. Yeah, I made this leaf blower, actually inspired by a work because of this guy. <laughs> um, you better say who this guy is for the recording. <laughs> it's Andrew, Andrew Stuck. And he showed me this work of us student of yours yeah that um it's the leaf blower and i said to myself oh this is really i thought it was really an australian thing you know so in my neighborhood like or wherever i go i can hear leaf blowers that's probably the new background noise yeah and it's beautiful because i tried it it's beautiful when you're on the side where the trigger is you know but if you're the opposite of that side it's not so much. It's very, it's very like annoying. Yeah. So that's probably is the the background noise that I'm talking about here. And it's and a background noise that speaks so much of that control of space and yeah. sort of like pushing yeah. the the leaf out of your little plot of land yeah. and things like and that. And making everything tidy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Has to be tidy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that um that leaf blow with the human ear, I think I think evokes a lot of your your work, which um. While it can deal with political ideas, they're often couched in very surreal, sometimes humorous, but often disturbing imagery. Can you tell us where these strange creatures, severed body parts and sort of odd amalgamations come from? Is that just the way your mind works? or Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, probably drinking so much coffee as well. <laughs> but uh, no, um, not, another thing is animism, which is, again, uh, it, during the pre-colonial Philippines, that's our belief system. Mm. And even now, you know, 
when the Spanish arrived during the 1500s, they brought in another belief system, which is Christianity. And then Islam as well came in from the south. And all of this, you know, get sort of like uh, mixed up with animism. So our belief system now is quite a combination of those different religious belief system and, and plus animism. So I'm quite familiar with it. So that's another thing, like in terms of figuration, when people make in the Philippines, you can see, you can see like, oh, it looks very surreal. Mm. But it's actually way way before than that yeah. because it's it's about our culture before the uh before colonialism mm. so so there's a lot of we believe in uh um like the world is uh inhabited by good and bad spirits like almost everything even natural disasters yeah. or nat- natural phenomenon like we believe that that's there's a spirit guiding that or mm. there's a and purpose objects as well and, and objects and as well so that's why my work is like that like they look like you know animated object you know yeah and it, it feels less unusual if these objects like a leaf blower suddenly takes on this kind of organic life yeah yeah, of yeah. its own yeah yeah that's really yeah. interesting yeah so and then also the way i put my works together even i have this big idea but in between in, in between the works, there's tiny little, you know, meanings into it, and 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 I love I love that in my work as well. So and then and 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 and, and that is, again, that is again very, uh, uh, backed up by the by by my by my my background cultural background, mm. which is you know, mythology belief system and stuff like that so if you go in the exhibition there that particular work there in front of you the the banana heart that's mm-hmm. is so mark's talk, referring to the banana hearts that are suspended yeah. inside these steel armatures that kind of that, that, hold them in place and look like they're kind of yeah draining. so that's that's really an amazing work not because it's my work but i just love i just love the way i was able to Manipulate the material or the whole, the whole, the whole idea, and put it here, and and it's actually there's three banana heart there that the transformation of the banana heart into this, you know, super Superman. What do you call that? The logo of Superman. The, yeah, Superman's sort of chest emblem with the and S the, inside. Yeah, 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 and then it turned into a. a yeah, the so the, the yeah. object that Mark's describing is a banana heart that on one side features the silhouette of Superman's yeah. distinctive sort of diamond-shaped chest emblem that then morphs morphs yeah. into an intermediate shape and then finally changes into uh, the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades, yeah. Yeah, and I really yeah. like that work because there is such a kind of polar philosophical difference between what Superman represents and what the Ace of Spades, that sort represent, of yeah. motorhead kind of yeah. symbol of chaos maybe re- yeah, represents. Or, or even, you know, the spikes of gates and fences. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, again, that goes back again to territoriality and gatekeeping again, which is big, big, mm. you know, layer in my work. Yeah. And and can I tell you a little bit of story of the, the mythology behind banana Please. heart. Yeah, go for it. Well, it's it. Uh, at a certain time, you have to catch this sort of like a pearl before the banana heart blooms. So, uh, according to our belief system, way before this, the Spaniards again, uh, you have to catch it on the right time, and and to give you like spirit, spiritual. If you catch that on the right time, you have to wait there under the banana the banana tree or the banana shrub. You have to wait for that little little pearl or um, sort of like the drop that the drop that drops from the yeah. the bottom of the banana heart before it it blooms mm-hmm. and it gives you it was believed that it, it gives you a, a supernatural you know powers yeah. like powers and makes you invincible and somehow like you know impenetrable by bullets and stuff like so so amulet, amulets and stuff are you know big big thing in the Philippines too. Wow, so, so that, that artwork is sort of showing an almost kind of mechanized factory production yeah. system to extract that mystical essence. Yeah, yeah. and I'm ba- based on an- animism again, there will be like creatures from the underworld waiting for it as well. Yeah. 
like but they cannot access it directly they have to wait for a human being to catch that right moment before it drops and then suddenly they'll take that the these creatures waiting will take that away from the whoever captured it so this that i like the metaphor of that in terms of a lot of things in the philippines and here from patriarchy you know from vi- even violence as well so well, sort of like accepted I think phenomenon. that's an interesting thing to touch on because while your work is very dense with this kind of mythological and cultural allusions, there's also an undercurrent of violence in in a lot of your work, these sort of severed body parts, but also yeah. the current show is filled with these uh, ceramic versions of curved rebar that have been bent into butcher's hooks. What does this motif of like the butcher's hook and, and this kind of undercurrent of violence represent in your in your practice? Well, violence and violence and fragility they go hand in hand. So, and that's one reason why I use ceramic. So I don't just use the object without. So I've been using ceramic for that reason, and uh, and violence. Obviously, it's my background again. So, it, you know, and how you know the beauty of clay. The beauty of clay is that uh, it can it can mold it. You can it's very malleable, you can touch it and it's very therapeutic at some point. But you can also freeze its form and you can also mimic other materials mm-hmm. without losing its you know its own personal characteristic and uh, identity. And you put it in the kiln, when you put it in the kiln it becomes an object because you fire it, it becomes solid and yeah it lasts forever. But if you drop it it breaks. So there's a lot of sort of like violence in the material if you if you just look into the the material itself and even firing in a kiln i mean who wants to be inside a kiln <laughs> so yeah so i love that with clay i love that and then the butcher's hook of course like when you look at the butcher's hooks it's it's it, the form itself is very violent already and then and then you get this made hooks made of clay it, that's for me that's really fascinating the 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 you know the opposite uh, sort of like they have opposite, you know, um, purpose so some, somehow. You know, like the butcher's hook has to stand weight and, you know, and, and then, but clay, clay defies it by saying like, oh, it's fragile. Yeah. In the streets of the, in the Philippines, there's a lot of butchery, metaphorically and literally. So there's a lot of, you know, butcher's spaces in the street. That's one of those things. And, houses as well the, the fighting cactuses and the tires the vulcanizing tires as well so these are the street these are the street art in the philippines yeah and that sort of furniture of the the streets in the philippines comes into the gallery and fills the space in your exhibitions yeah yeah so and in, in in i've been talking to anna about this about the theory of opposition and chess by the way my the structure of my work is about chess uh, my, my stru- the structure of my work is, is based on chess because I play a lot of chess and there's uh, one thing in uh, you know in chess that's called the, the op- opposition the theory of opposition the, the, the rec opposition in particular which you know you left with a king and a, on both sides king on the same file on the same rank and then you get a pawn that if that gets promoted at the eighth rank it becomes easy for you to win the game of course obviously because it becomes a queen it becomes a queen right but if you're the defender you prevent the king from occupying a space in the middle right and you don't want the pawn to because once the king occupies that with the pawn the king with the pawn that occupies the middle already the space in the middle because there's a gap between two kings right once the king uh, with the pawn occupies that that automatic automatically the pawn behind the king becomes a queen. Hmm. And and then the other way around, if you're defending it, you prevent that by doing the opposition. And and my work it's 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 like that. So when I first came here, you know, um, it's a bit quiet for me. So I said to myself, I'm gonna fill the gap. You know, like there's there's plenty of gaps and spaces. I'm gonna fill it up a bit. That will that will actually help me navigate mm. the space as well. 
So your art strategically is like a counter move to the yeah, environment that you're in. Exactly. It's, it's and when I go to the Philippines, I do the other way around. I make this like really pristine one work, minimalist one yeah. work. <laughs> and one of the people, what? It's only two works? <laughs> yeah. Because we're different there as well. It's crowded. So so I like that. I like that. I really um, like that, that that sort of connection to chess, which I understand is a really... Um, is a huge interest for you. It's something that yeah. drives you. It's probably not something that is visible on the surface of your mm. work, but this understanding of the strategies of chess or the approaches to playing that game really inform the way in which you work, even on a meta level of, of how you decide you make your exhibitions. And we were talking before, and you were describing the show that's in the gallery now as an intermediate yeah. stage. I know there are intermediate moves in chess as well, but what did you mean by by this exhibition in the gallery now as being an intermediate stage for this, this work? Well, um, um, I always find a space or a gallery or any other spaces for exhibition. Sometimes it stops at a certain time, certain moment. It, it begins in a, in a certain time and it stops on a certain time. So sort of like I want to expand that because for me, sometimes or most of the time, um, my practice is about now it's more of like putting things together now so I have this creating an object thing an anti-object thing and, and then put them together and make an immersive installation but sometimes it stops and I don't want it to stop so my way of doing it is um, this is just happens um, um, uh, lately because uh, I sort of like find it very very, uh, you know, like annoying at some point that we get accumulate, we, ha we get works accumulated, particularly artists like me that makes a lot of things, right? And they culminate most of the time after the exhibition in a storage. Yeah. So part of the big, part of my practice is reconfiguring and putting things, uh, bringing new meanings to my work again. And, and when we were talking yeah, about this from a kind of animus perspective, yeah, maybe yeah. you were describing things that end up in storage as they've died. Or yeah, they've kind of uh, so lost they sort of like they die or yeah. they become dead. And because you know how work becomes dead when you don't look at it or you don't engage in it, but it becomes alive again when you look at it. I just want my work to be at some point a bit dynamic. So, and I want it moving, you know. So this exhibition, I... I sort of somehow design the structures and and the works that will fit in my studio in the future. So mm -hmm. my studio is the another space that I could keep on reconfiguring, keep on changing the meaning of the works, and it's endless there. It's endless possibility there. Mm. You know, it's like, again, it's just, it's one of those chess thing again, like. You know, when you when you when you you are playing chess, you get the, you have this plenty of lines that you can go and branches and branches. When you go to your space, that's that's millions of possibilities there, and and the meaning change from the time to time. The way they're very different to the way we put an object and its function, and look at an object and its function is sometimes boxed into one meaning. So. I think it's a really interesting way for an artist to think about their practice, to not consider an exhibition as a terminal point, as a culmination and like, this is now done. And you take works from previous exhibitions. Sometimes you reconfigure them, rework them, but sometimes you just t transplant it from one show to the next. And yeah. it feels a lot more sustainable and a lot yeah, more exactly. integrated in terms yeah. of, a, of a continuing practice. Yeah, exactly, because that's that, that's what I probably all artists are facing right now. After an exhibition, where are you going to throw these things? Mm -hmm. Not everybody gets uh, acquired or, you know, being loved. So, I mean, not everything. They end up in a bin or sometimes recycled bins. <laughs> or like sometimes, uh, you know, grog. What I mean, grog, you break them if they're ceramic. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I, sustainability is a big thing. Yeah. Like, how do you? How do you do that? I, I think it's it's time to do that as an artist, you know, uh, plan it ahead. Probably that's the planning stage that I, that every artist should reconsider so that they just, I mean, from timber to nails to everything, they shouldn't just go in a bin. Mm. And they should. 
Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd love to touch on um, some of the specific works in this exhibition as well. We've still got a little bit of time. Um, one of the most distinctive techniques that you use is using the surface of a ceramic object as a space for drawing. That happens a number of times yeah. in the show, but I'm thinking particularly about the Aliwaris uh, creature that is suspended high up on the wall in the gallery. Um, how do you go about achieving this effect uh, of, of using the ceramic surface as a, as a surface for creating a drawing? Well, um, also, I really love drawings a lot. Drawing, drawings a lot. love to draw a lot. So I used to draw every, everybody that draws every day anyway, including you, right? <laughs> um, but, to, to varying degrees of proficiency. But yeah, yeah I think you're better yeah. at it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but again, like the sculpture itself, I would, or the installation itself, I love to look, I love to look at it as a drawing. And one, one thing that I actually um, get fascinated with is like when you're covering instead of glaze, when you're covering the work. And I used to put, I used to put drawings a lot on a work, on, a, on, a per, on, a, on an object. But that will give you, again, you focus to an object, right? So now I look at the work now in a distance, more and from a distance, from a distance. So drawing makes sense. It looks like the whole installation is a drawing. Mm. Mm. So ceramic ceramic pencil is one thing. I I sometimes use uh, acrylic stencils and stuff, but I seldom do that in my work. In my on my ceramic, what I do, what I use is the the pencil, because it looks like a. It looks like pencil, but it's not. It's 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 a it's it's made of clay, and then you fire it high, and it retains. It becomes part of the clay, so it's like. There's a huge sort of um, uh, textural similarity between that that clay pencil on the surface of the clay and the wall drawing that you create in the yeah. gallery as well. They look yeah. very similar, but they're actually completely different. Oh yeah, because yeah. it can erase. I used to make fun of when I was in the Philippines. I had exhibition like when material is quite new there, and I used to used to tell people like because some 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 collectors in the Philippines it's funny because they try to erase it I'm like how oh, can you erase this I'm like yeah you, you, I give it to you if you can erase it yeah. <laughs> it's quite hard. it's quite funny it's, it becomes embedded in the work and becomes the work itself yeah. so that's the beauty of it hmm. but this new body of work also shows a lot more experimenting with glazes I feel like that's that's quite a yeah. a bit of a departure for your practice is that can you tell us what's been going on in the studio well well, I, I, I tend to, even though I have informs, I have, I have this, you know, um, uh, I don't want to control the form. I just let, 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 uh, play with the form the way I play with the clay and then let the form sometimes comes out. But in terms of glazing, I'm worried about it so much. And I think I mentioned it in one of the talks in AXA that, um, I never, I, I build, Kilns, right? And I, I fired Anagama kilns as well. I even built an, an Anagama kiln here with my partner in, 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 in the south, in Normanville. So I used to fire a lot with Anagama with other, using other people's work, not my work, because I'm, I'm, I'm worried that it doesn't come out right. I'm not experimenting with other people's work, <laughs> but uh, it's just I know that it doesn't work with my work because there's a tendency with object that when you put it there, with all the glazes, you're wasting your time. You, it could be a waste of time, you know, the whole thing. And it has sort of like even the same, the same concept with glazing that could the firing could ruin a work, you know. And then it's not like a cup that you could, you know, make it into se uh, one of those seconds that you can you can still reuse it. But when mm -hmm. it comes to sculpture, it's it could die quickly. Well, so, it's really interesting. I mean, you you are a chess player, and that is a game of skill. And glazing is a game of chance, I think is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, it's not a game of chance. It's, uh, with natural ash, it is a game yeah. of chance. But with glazing, using glazed materials, that is a precise science as well. So mm. there's a science to it. And that's pretty predictable mm. at some point. My only worry is that when I put that in my work, it, I, could, I couldn't imagine it as quick as that. It just... Just doesn't work yet, you know. I can't. So glazing is new to me. So I no, 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 not sorry, not new to me, but new in my work. Yeah. And this time around, I just let it loose. So what you see there is a mixture of different glazes that I don't even know. Like I just put them in one one thing work out, and I just repeated it. 
it's a really exciting sort of variety of different surface textures and colors and, and effects of the glaze. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of glaze that flows really when it's high temperature, it, it flows down and I've sacrificed a lot of shelves. You were telling me? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it gets, it gets stuck in the shelf, right? Um, but also the movement, you can see the movement. Like the movement of glazes makes the work alive. Hmm. Yeah, so that, that that's why, like, probably I'm gonna settle with that, you know, surface for a bit. Hmm. Yeah, not but not forever. <laughs> um, another element of the show that I really like is there's a sequence of small drawings which you call your brewing drawings, um, and these are part of a daily ritual yeah. that you, that you took part. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that habit and ritual plays in your practice? And for listeners at home, I will just let them know that before we sat down to talk, Mark has brought his entire kit in here to yeah, brew us. Uh, he's going to get a top up. He brought his kit in here to brew us a cup of coffee, and he's just getting a little top up of coffee now. So I well, think that this is a this is a big ritual. That's a big part of yeah, your life. Yeah, it does. As well. It's the same as uh, space making too. Like I've been thinking and been saying about this forever to my, all my friends that I want to make a space, same as. Very similar to this ceremony, and then I make a space made of ceramic, like or other found objects, and then I brew coffee there, and then have conversation because that's usually with the coffee, it's uh, it's quick, it's fast. You love, we love to just drink it and go, right? So s sort of like I want to put back ritual in my work, and growing, growing is again a thing that. Um, you know, I do I do every day, every morning. So every morning I draw parallel to if you if you follow my Instagram, you can find that there. So there's a drawing and there's a there's brewing. And they're so related. And and the reason why I love that is that um it it brings me back to the detail of my practice. You know how chess is the structure, right? And almost like a, your my strategy in my art practice and my art making. And then each line in order to go to each line and opening you go back to the detail which is very important as well and then coffee gives gave that back to me you know that attention to detail again so and then focus into a making an object i used to the problem is i used before i used to have this conflict in myself about making an object and non-object and it's a, it's a beautiful comment that i received from an artist somewhere I met in, in Northern Territory, and a, a really good artist, and she, she just called my work as, as an object. And at that time, I got really, you know, like, it, it went into my head, in other words. So I said, like, I'm not going to make, I'm not just making an object. So there was this conflict in me, like, how can I make a non-object, yeah. you know? And, and then the performance probably is one way to do it. But also... Uh, and then I just this, you know, like I was able to have this, uh, you know, realization like, well, it could be an object that criticizes an, an object, mm. you know, it could be an object that is an anti-object. Mm. So now I just said like, all right, back to details. Don't worry about the object, non-object thing. They're just all, you know, a perception thing. So, But I think that's a really nice comment because it kind of takes us full circle back to what we were talking about before with this idea of your... Uh, practice not being restricted to the to the object in space but mm. considering that process by which it's made considering how something is fired what its surface is like and how it exists in space and how it might move and change over time i mm. think that's a really yeah, fascinating exactly. aspect to your practice that i i love that we have this opportunity to have this conversation because it really comes out mm. and uh, i hope people get the opportunity to revisit mark's show during its run here because it yeah. will grow and change it will grow and change and and the more you go in there it's 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 an it's an immersive work the more you grow in there the more you see things as well yeah yeah so it, it brings you back to the individual piece the object which is not necessarily an object mm. um mark's right you will see more things that more often you go back there, he has an incredibly dense and complicated practice, which maybe can't be unpacked in an hour's talk, but maybe you might be able to find more by reading this book. Um, but we also have a few minutes now for some questions from the audience. So does anyone have any questions for Mark? Um, how, how do you think traveling has, 
think it's improved your work or do you think it's changed it in a certain way? Yeah, it does actually. Like even just coming here in Australia. Like as there was a time in my life, like probably the five five years of my li- when I live here, I still consider living here as traveling <laughs> because I still perceive my you know my where where I come from or my or, or the country where I come from is the the home and I found it very difficult too. Anyway, so yeah, it does a lot. So when I came here, it changed my my practice. It changed my practice a lot. And then, of course, going somewhere, going to my, going to exhibitions in Southeast Asia, every time it's important. Traveling is important. It opens your, you know, you know, your world in many ways. You know, you sometimes, you know, as a, a practitioner, you end up like just staying in your studio, and working. Traveling provides you a community that you realize that oh, in other parts of the world, you get community there as well so and and you see other people's work other people's practice and it helps you a lot it's like a natural critic (laughs) when you see they're like oh i'm doing worse than what she's doing or he's doing (laughs) (laughs) and then you change you grow from that i just want to go back to that what this perceived criticism Is, is it possible to sort of see, well, I'm, I'm thinking in here what we do when we, we make things, we, we are actually making objects, but it's because, and I think this is what you were alluding to, because they, they communicate, therefore it's in the communication where the artwork is. They're still objects, and if none of you sees them, and if they're locked away after an exhibition and storage, they're objects. Yes, they're objects. But... The art happens, as it were, and these objects are transformed in relationship with other than themselves. So your audience, or yeah, whatever. it gets animated. Yeah, yeah, it get, gets animated. Is, is that what you were kind of alluding to? Is that, that? Well, whatever you do, I mean, everything is an object anyway. Yes. So yeah. the only thing is, you don't want it to be just. What I meant about becoming an object is that tied to a single meaning yes and i don't mind that but recently in my practice i think i mean in reality as well you know things change you know for me it's always been that classic case of the the political meeting the metaphysical yeah and creating objects that that convey the meaning of and the journeys of that process, yeah, um, which you arrive at through the very physical process of making an object, and those ideas then solidify yeah. the, the object, which is now an artifact because it generates meaning. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, that's a very complex uh, question, there, Andrew. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well. What? Still a complex guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So again, the is is again the object becomes just an object with a single meaning, and 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 and, and um, for me, that's quite static for me, right? And in my practice, is what I've been saying that I want my work to be more dynamic at the same time, moving, moving, and and it changes, it morphs into something else, it morphs into into another having a different meaning depends upon the space because the, the idea is the space always change the the, the the inhabitants and vice versa, right? The context. Yeah, the context change. So in that way, in, in some way, I want to retain that. Like, and, 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 and if you just put one meaning to it and that's it, that's, that's, that's it, you know? Put a line to it, that's a box, you know? And, 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 and it's... It becomes it becomes simplified. It becomes simplified. So I don't want that. So I want it as as what I said. Your question is complex, and the work, the object, the object definition is very complex as well. But do you think about how an audience will understand the work? I mean, every audience member will have a different view of what an object is, what what a given object yeah. means. Yeah. Do you do you put together? You assemble your 
exhibition on the basis of a vision you have, or is it in response to what you think viewers might understand it to be? Yeah, that's a very good question. A bit of both for me, because there are there are times that I, of course, consider the audience as part of the space, right? And the way they react and the way they perceive the object that I'm making or the space that I'm making is, is you know, they, they become part of the, the I mean, the, the audience will be part of that as well. So the, the reaction is one thing. But also there is a thing sometimes that it's just about me, you know. I mean, why not? <laughs> like sometimes you need it sometimes you need it sometimes you consider the audience sometimes not because in the end you know it's about you some t- probably most of the time I-, I hope I answered that question well yeah, yeah, that's so it's, that's why it's a bit of both it's a bit of both and you can do play both as well like you can consider the audience and at the same time it's about you but that's pretty stressful at some point the art, the art here is in a school the art of the art of South Australia is in a, a museum. Yep. They have correspond well, complementary functions. Complementary functions. Um, but you might not, or you might have thought about what work you would put here, what work you would put there. Is the work that's in the art gallery going to be changing? Is that going to be evolving? Um, I added a few bits there, but that's based and the exhibition there is based on the the, the, the collections that the works that they acquired from me during the biennial. And I get the point that there's, there are limits there as well. So, but maybe. Whereas yeah. here we have no limits. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. But, I might have uh, let myself in for something there. <laughs> yeah, but I have few options there that I could interchange the duckies. <laughs> but here, I love it. I love that. I love it. They're, dif- they're, they're different. And, and, and when I decide your question, when I, when how, what, to, if I've given the chance to occupy two spaces, I will make it as fluid as I can. It's not like this object only belongs here and that object belongs there, or that work belongs here, that work belongs there. I want them to be relate, related because it's made by myself and it's all about, again, it's all, it goes back to me and I made those works, they're all related. All, they fall into one flow according to the way I live my life. I think that might be where we need to, to leave this conversation. Um, thank you all very much for joining us and can please thank uh, Mark Bell and Twyla.